Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so we can all do a better job creating products that our customers love. This episode is sponsored by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. This is the fastest way for product VPs and leaders to help their product managers and everyone else that's involved in product to really get on the same page together and increase their performance. It's unlike any other training you've seen. It's an integrated experience. To find out more, go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM and see if it can help your team as well. As product innovators, we encounter many tensions. To name just a few of these, meeting this quarter's objective or maybe creating the breakthrough of the future, perhaps the team building that we want to do, or really the having more personal flexibility, or what about process improvement or just getting the job done that is in front of us right now? So lots of tensions that we tend to deal with as product people, as innovators. And we're going to dive into this a little bit more because research has found that such tensions reflect these underlying paradoxes, and they might actually be something that can help us in the end. So how can we be more effective dealing with these tensions or even perhaps using them to our benefit? Our guest that has been researching this for over 20 years is Dr. Marianne Lewis. She is the Dean and Professor of Management of the Carl H. Linder College of Business, University of Cincinnati. She's a thought leader in organizational paradoxes, and she is among the world's top 1% most cited researchers in her field. And listeners, as a reminder, if you do want a written summary of anything that we talk about, including a one-page action guide that we put together each time for each episode to help you put into action some of the key takeaways, the reason this action guide came about is because some groups, some product teams, use this podcast as a way to upskill themselves. And the action guide turns out to be a great discussion guide if you want to share it with others too and have a deeper discussion about what we talk in this episode. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 433. Dr. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here. So you were at the PDMA conference this last at the end of 2022. So that's where I found out about the work that you're doing. And I'm really interested in there's all kinds of tensions that come up when we're developing products and interested in what you have found in organizationally, some of the tensions that occur and what we can do about that. Can you just first give us a background on the research that you've been involved in? Maybe I'll start someplace I don't typically start, but I'm thinking about it because I just did a, a, an interesting webinar with um, my father. So that's where I'm going to start. So my father's name is Steve Wheelwright, and Steve Wheelwright and Kim Clark wrote some of the early work on revolutionizing product development, and he's very much a mathematician and an operations management professor. I, I was not aware he's your father, just I do very much admire his books. And, oh, you do? Okay. Oh, yes. He's definitely on the list of thought leaders that I've learned from through books. He's certainly been on my list <laughs> as well, and I share that because I grew up going to manufacturing plants with him, having discussions, and thinking I didn't want to be an academic. Clearly, that didn't turn out the way I expected. And I'm so grateful to it. But as I started to realize how much I love the research and the teaching side and really studying patterns across product development and innovation rather than doing the product innovation, I found myself, I share his work because it's interesting. We I went into it thinking based on, as in Kim's work, that was really all about the product development process. But as I got more into innovation, both on a process innovation as well as product, what I found was this swirl of tensions surrounding, you could have the best stage gate or whatever process you're using in the world, but some of the examples that you started out with, Chad, are perfect, right? But am I focused on leveraging today's products or creating tomorrow's markets, 
right? Am I focused on being really rigorous and disciplined in what I'm doing or bold and spontaneous? Am I thinking about being global in my reach and my scale or focused on the local differences and suppliers that are possible? And the more I studied, the more I found the really the best firms and more importantly to me, the leaders don't think of those as or. And that requires a very different mindset. And that just took me down this whole path of what are these tensions? Are there patterns in, in, in the tensions themselves, but also in what more effective leaders and firms do with them versus less effective? And that's what we put into the book, the recent book, Both Am Thinking, is work coming out of that. Okay, excellent. So there's a book that we can go to. We'll get a link for that later for sure. But the most effective leaders don't think about this as or, these tensions. How can this actually help us? So give us a description of what is both and thinking. Let's drop the punchline here. Sure. And Absolutely. Get us grounded in that. And then we'll talk through about how we put this into practice. Okay. And I, Chad, I think the best way to describe both and thinking is actually to start with its contrast, which is either or thinking. Okay. What I found in my work is that either or thinking tends to be our default. It's this approach where we experience attention. And when I even say the word tension, I can feel it in my chest, mm-hmm. can feel that tug of war being pulled in opposing directions. And an either or approach, we immediately see a dilemma. We start to weigh the pros and cons. This is classic formal logic. We make a decision and we move on. And the reason that's the default is one, it feels like we have a sense of control and clarity. We then also tend to be increasingly consistent and make the same type of decision in that either or again and again. And in my findings, it's a really limited and even potentially detrimental approach because are we really limited to a binary? Are there other possibilities? But also in a question like you, I'll go back to one of my favorites I see so often in innovation, which is are we focused on today's products and leveraging or are we focused on creating and bold new innovation? If we literally only do one or the other, we're immediately or very soon to hit a real challenge because they feed each other. Both and thinking is about how do we shift to look at accommodating the tensions, seeing them as opportunities for learning and creativity and growth rather than these almost paralyzing moments of I must make a call. And I'm not saying sometimes you don't have to make a call, but both hand thinking, the big core idea that has come certainly into my work is the idea of rather than this trade-off, think in terms of paradox. Mm. And when I say the term paradox, I immediately can visualize, and I'm hoping I can help listeners think about this, picture in your minds the yin-yang, right? The dark and the black and white halves flowing into each other. Actually, as you get more into one side, you see this kernel of the next and it brings you around. And in the case of the tension I just mentioned, which is just a classic to me, and I hear it all the time, it's Okay, our bread and butter current products are what fund our radical R&D, and our radical R&D and our bold new innovations become our core products. So you can almost, if you think about those two, you can see the yin-yang flowing. To me, that's a really key piece, one, to see them as two parts of a bigger whole, but to also recognize it is a persistent tension. We may make a decision today because we got to hit, we got to hit, quarterly targets. We got to focus a little more this month on our current products. And we'll have other times where we say, we've had some big windfalls. We're really on a high. We need to invest that funds and have a whole team just go blue, blue ocean, right? And really think big. 
it's a both. And how do we help leaders and firms and really make this a pervasive practice to move, move us forward? A little more context. I have two things I want to share with you, just observations on that. First, I remember sure. many times early in my career as an engineer that turned into someone leading teams to d- develop products, thinking, okay, today and most of my time, like most of all this week is going to be tactical work, right? As I just got to get the work done that's in front of me and trying to carve out a little bit of time for what I just would always think of as strategic work. It's like, I really want to think further out about what's going on not with just this project, but how this might take us somewhere else. And always feeling like there was that always got squeezed out. And that was my tension among many others, but that was one thing. Organizationally, so that's happening in me internally as an individual. Organizationally, I've seen companies, we talk about where should we put our efforts and one model 70% on the today work, the incremental support work, making products a little bit better. And then maybe the other 30% in some newer areas for us. But organizationally, we kind of get bogged down into the product team. They're focused just on responding to probably sales, meeting the changes to the existing products. That's all they ever do. And the organization says, we do need to work on that 20 or 30% on something new. We'll put an innovation team in place for that. And they're addressing it by having two different groups or people. And the poor product people are feeling like we don't get to do any of the new fun stuff because they're just working on that. Since you've studied this organizationally, what are your insights about that Uh individual tension where I want to do both at times and organizationally how they're dealing with trying to address both of those problems? Oh, I think you absolutely hit that nail on the head, Chad. So I'll give you maybe two examples there. So one is a was a project that we did. It's in organization science. We did we studied product design firms in Silicon Valley. So think IDEO. And what we found, now that's a, this is one type of firm. So I'll give you a different example, which is a Fortune 500 singular firm. So these firms, and these were, these were the ones that were incredibly financially successful. They're winning big awards and all this. People would assume that all, that their work is, they've shifted the kind of ratio you just said, and they're doing all this, the radical product development. But that's not true. That's not how they pay their bills. They pay their bills by doing version 2.0 of a phone or a, of a mouse, picking up different things. That is absolutely how they pay the bills. What we've, what we found in this tension that you're talking about is three different levels. So think strat- strategic level, team, team and client level, and the individual, right? Which is your piece. At the strategy level, what we saw is that these firms got really good at thinking about their project portfolio. And making sure that they always had a mix of the incremental pay the bills kind of projects and some set of projects that were the potential award winning showcase projects. And when they didn't have enough and they didn't need many of the showcase projects, but they would actually start their own. They had kept enough slack. They could do their own. So that was one piece. I'll jump down all the way to the bottom because of that portfolio. What they would do at the individual designer level is they would rotate because they absolutely saw your point. If you kept people all the time on the pay the bills kind of things, they'd be like, I didn't get into design. I didn't, this is not what I got in this job to do. And I'm at an award-winning place. And right. So that's a problem. But they also found if you only kept people on the showcase kind of wild-eyed projects, they lived and breathed those to a set a state, which you can picture, right? Think of the creative. It was completely burnout, 
right? They would think about it in their sleep. It would be like a 24-7 projects. There was only so much time. They would actually found that those people after some time needed to be on an incremental project to rejuvenate, kind of sharpen and hone their skills, rebuild their confidence because some fail in the other projects. And they found that one of the ways that they connected those pieces is both at a strategy level, we do both, this is how we excel. And there was always a both and in the strategy and vision of the firm. And at the individual, they very much fostered this identity of I'm a practical artist. And helping these people feel good about both so that they understood sometimes you'll be on one type of project and sometimes you'll be on another. All right. So that's now those that can think about a variety of projects and and this iterative movement. The corporate kind of goal example I would give you, and I'm literally doing this because this morning, it was actually the meeting right before this, I had the chief digital officer of Fifth Third Bank, which is located here in Cincinnati. And she was fabulous. And she was, she actually said, oh my, if I'm not careful, urgency will always, always, always push out creativity and innovation. Right. And I said, so what do you do for that? And she said, this is one of those classic challenges. I need people hitting the targets. We need people to know how to make everything work, right? We're a publicly traded company. And at the same time, I have to compartmentalize. Sometimes it's a compartmentalize, compartmentalization in terms of time, like a certain a day or two in a month. Micro sabbaticals are being used in, increasingly there and at Procter & Gamble, who's also in Cincinnati, or different ways that we actually do almost like job rotation, even in a big firm. But I think one of the interesting things about understanding paradox is that ways to resolve, and they don't go away, so resolve just means work through paradoxes, are typically about time and space. Can you carve out time and or can you create different spaces? And spaces could mean what you said, Chad, are there different teams or structures or projects, but it could also mean like we they have an innovation center at Fifth Third, just right up my road, so that they literally physically leave one building and go to another right. to get in a different headspace. Right. But I love that. The point is you make this intentional. If not, the urgency will push out the bolt. Okay. So for me, that's a good mic drop moment, right? The And I just wanted to underscore this for listeners, that if we are in this situation and you have influence in, this, in your organization, it, we're struggling with this paradox between the work that needs to get done today, we're responding to the improvements that sales says that they need or marketing says that needs to be done to the product. And also, we have some of these great insights about our customers' problems, especially as product people, that we know we need to go some other places. Organizationally, one way that firms have been successful managing this is to let people move back and forth. And maybe this quarter, you're working on today's projects and what's coming in to change that. And next quarter, you're part of a team working on maybe not a moonshot, could be a moonshot sort of project, but the new thing that someone says, hey, our problem, our customers having this problem, we don't have a solution for that yet. It's something completely new to us. Let's go tackle that. And creating space just for that, both in terms of time, but also mm-hmm. physically too, because it changes how we think if we get out of our normal environment where we're making things just better and into maybe a different environment where we get to work on the new thing and we get to think differently just because we're changing environments too. Okay, good summary? Yeah, that's a nice, oh, that's a very nice summary. Thank you. I think that's very important because I see organizations really struggling with this, knowing how do we keep our people involved and respond to what we want to Mm -hmm. do today to let them have space to do tomorrow. So that's really helpful for us. 
Let's get more into some of the details of the practice here, again, as maybe the individual product leader that can influence the product managers or organizationally. How do we put both and thinking into practice? So we found, actually, we think about it as a system of tools. And I, when I say we, I'm typically talking about Wendy Smith, my co-author, but I've worked with a lot of people around the world, and we pulled this together in the both-hand thinking book. But we developed a series of tools, and we call it a system of tools because in a classic systems approach, if you just used one of these tools, it wouldn't be enough. It's how do you think through it. And so we think A, B, C, D. A is assumptions, boundaries, comfort, and dynamics. All right? Those are the A, B, C, D. When we start with assumptions, the way we want to be thinking about it, and we typically start when I'm, say, working with executives or with a team, is this is about how do we change the question Mm. we're asking? And I know it's a favorite point of yours to think about an innovation quote, but a mantra that I have used for a long, long time came out of psychology experts at Stanford many years ago, a fellow named Paul Watzlawick. And the, the, his statement was, the problem is not the problem. The problem is the way we think about the problem. And the reason I think that is so critical for assumptions is that as soon as we ask and frame our problem as a question, we have set constraints. So when you say gosh, do I focus on my current products or do I focus on what's big and next and new? You, you've dichotomized it, you've limited it, rather than how might I, <laughs> how could we co- accommodate, right, the new and the old? Or how could we shoot for the moon in the future while leveraging our foundations and our current products. There are lots of ways you could ask that question, but it actually, we believe fervently, it starts by your assumptions because your assumptions are going to limit the way you think about it. And really pushing people, I've found like with a lot of the firms that I've been able to work with, the more you get, you think about this question, it becomes this habit. You can hear the or questions around the room. As soon as you're sitting around a table or whiteboarding or around a screen and you so one, first, you've got to question your assumptions and thereby re- reframe your question. Get it to the and and about accommodating. Right. So you don't think about it as this immediate trade-off. That's the A, assumptions. Okay. So assumptions, the key there is really reframing. Just mm-hmm. for more reflection here, the, one of the key yeah, things that I recognize moving from as an engineer to leading product development is the, necess- the necessity for me to reframe the problem. Because as an engineer, so you cool. hand me a problem, I'm like, I'm on it. I'm a problem solver. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. And I recognized often the problem that's first brought to us isn't the actual problem to solve, right? We need to make it bigger and think about it differently. So I really like the way you chose assumptions and starting with this, how might we do something a little bit different here? Mm-hmm. Or how might we handle the situation? Okay. Yeah. And even the way when I hear you say it, it just changes the tone of the discussion. Mm-hmm. You've, you've just asked a question with curiosity, which opens. Right. So the B for boundaries is really about how do we separate and connect is the way we think about this. And we're, I'm talking to innovators and yourself included, Chad, obviously, think improvisation framework or a variety of tools here. But what I mean by, se- we mean by separating and connecting is typically when we're doing this either or, we say weigh the pros and cons, make a choice and move on. What we mean about separating is you still need to really stretch and dive into the pros and cons, but part of doing that is recognizing that the cons of one approach are the pros of another and vice versa. And when you start to do that and respect the needs on both sides, 
So then the question, once you've seen, oh, that's interesting, the cons of one or the pros of the other and vice versa, okay, I really want to respect the value and what I'm seeking at my best of both of these opposing options, what might be these connectors, right? Are there ways to connect through time and space? Are there ways to connect through a higher purpose that holds this together? An example that I go through quite a bit in the book and one of my favorite studies early in my career was around Lego. And Lego got when they almost went into bankruptcy because they had gone on an innovation product development binge, literally, they realized they had to put some guardrails up and think about, one, what did they want to make sure they were keeping about their really bold, innovative approach, but they had lost all of their cost controls, quality controls, the things that held them together. And by doing this kind of mapping of both sides, they built some guardrails that said, look, we're going to innovate within boundaries. And actually by doing that, they were more creative. They found all sorts of opportunities to say, okay, we're going to use less specialty bricks. And actually designers went, okay, then what do I, how do I make the most of them? They found that's kind of part of the improvisation paradox is actually those kind of constraints can get your creative juices flowing. Mm -hmm. So that's the boundaries piece. Excellent. The C is really about the emotional side and finding comfort in the discomfort. Because people don't really typically like that feeling of tensions, that tug of war I said you feel in your heart and as you're working through the, but I don't think it's possible kind of feeling to do both, is how do you say, and we're going to. And we're going to just sit with this discomfort and work through it. And I found some leaders just exceptionally good. And one that I write, we write about quite a bit in the book is Paul Pullman, when he was turning around Unilever, um, And he would say this quite a bit, and I would bring students and others to him at different parts of the world. And he would always say, when you bring me a problem and you tell me, and here's our solution, I'm going to tell you, go bring me back another and make sure it's the, it's almost opposite. And he would play this game. He said, because in his view, tensions provide creative friction and he wants as much creative friction on the table as possible. And by doing that, he was trying to build this comfort in Unilever that you actually want to have that feeling. If you want to have really good, creative, cost-efficient, scalable, and locally recognized products, where you have to have the tensions on the table. And if we're not there, realize we need to go back until we have that kind of churn. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense on the comfort? Yeah. I think if you don't get the emotions at least understanding and accepting that they're going to be there, you're going to revert back to your old assumptions. Yeah. Uh, and then the D is about dynamics. Okay. Yeah. I was just no, say, you want to say? Going back to, to the, the beginning of this, right? Assumptions. I think that opens our yeah. brains to start thinking differently, right? That, that we can embrace both of these and move down, which adds to the comfort. And the boundaries over time, developers, engineers, when we're first exposed to tensions, we kind of feel like something's being taken away. Like, why are you removing that Uh off the plate? But we recognize over time, it actually does make us more innovative because we're focusing, we're taking some things off where we can focus more. And I like the example from Lego, right? We're going to have fewer core blocks now. Okay, what can I do with those, right? It's like, how can we put this to better use? And that, I think, through experience brings comfort. Yeah, go ahead. It does. I was just thinking about something in this webinar the other night with my father, and he said when he and Kim... Clark were doing so much work on product development, one of the paradoxical insights that they found from companies is they got into a lot of trouble when they just kept adding more and more projects. And so the less is more Hmm. focus, which is a different kind of improvisation 
right? It's a constraint of numbers. Is he, is they found that the firms that did better product development had fewer projects on the table. I'm not saying like one or two, but they didn't have 50 and find themselves really stretched way too thin. So I think it was going, he was speaking to what you just said is it was, it doesn't mean, and doesn't mean just keep adding. And that's not what we mean by and, like everything goes. It's, you do need those constraints. Absolutely. Yeah. And fewer projects just helps us with focus yeah. and excitement too. It's like, this is something I'm really it into, does. right? Yeah. And you can see the choices. The D for dynamics also be, builds into your comment about, because when we see this, I think, you know, it, think about a, almost a clock and you go from assumptions to boundaries, to comfort, to dynamics back. But the emotions and the assumptions are opposing sides in some ways because assumptions are cognitive and emotions are affective. But on the other side, boundaries sound very static. They sound like they are these guardrails. But dynamics, what we've learned in our work with organizations is that organizations and leaders in particular that are really good at managing tensions see this as a journey. They know that they're going to keep adjusting the boundaries, not like wantonly, but with this understanding that we are going to keep experimenting. We are going to build our improvisations as we go. We may add and take away rules because the world is changing around us. And more than anything, the opportunity that comes out of tensions is learning. So yes, we're going to make static decisions in the moment and have some rules that guide us. And we have to recognize we're walking. One of the, one of the metaphors we use is tightrope walking. Right. So we're walking a tightrope. And if you think about tightrope walking, the reason we like that and Pullman is a great example of it is a tightrope walker has a really clear view that they're where they're going, but they're making these micro shifts all along the way. They're moving. They're not stop moving forward, but you're making me these micro shifts because sometimes you do have to have your quarterly earnings reported. And other times you say, we're going to aim for the stars and make a big splash because we have an opportunity to do, but the guardrails help it so you don't lean so far that you fall off the tightrope. So you do get this this balancing approach from both the boundaries and the dynamics of moving forward. And so I think leaders that are really good at this help people understand this is dynamic. Because a question we'll get is, yeah, but won't I sound like I'm wavering or waffling or I'm inconsistent? And we've met amazing leaders, Terry Gore of of Gore-Tex and would talk about this, like she'd start every meeting about we're both. And by the way, today we need to focus more on X. Hmm. So that, yes, it's it was being inconsistent, but with this consistency of because it, we're always both, it's just going to depend which foot we're leaning on is going to depend quite a bit on the situations we're currently facing. Yeah, it's a great perspective. I like that quote. We're both, but today this is where our focus is. Okay, so our model here is assumptions, reframing from the beginning, asking how might we and instead of just approaching the tension as is, boundaries, which are guardrails to help us really focus on the core, perhaps what we should be doing. The comfort is the emotional reaction to this and recognizing that there's more than one way to get something done. And we should explore the more than one way, the different solutions. And then the dynamics that we're not stuck in this model we've created for ourselves per se, but we are learning as we continue through this and knowing where to shift our focus from time to time and how to be open to the future as well. Okay. Love the framework very much that you shared with us there. You hit on some examples along the way. I don't know if there's an mm-hmm. example that might bring this together that you wanted to share with us. There there are several I could use. Maybe one that I find that's particularly helpful, I'll go back to the Unilever, because I think 
when Paul Pullman took over Unilever, they were real. It, the company was failing. It was really challenged at the time. And one of the interesting things that I, one of the reasons I love using him as an example is that when he came into the to the firm, he 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 shifted a question that I think maybe most of the leaders first wouldn't have put as the primary question. What he decided the question was: How can we increase our profitability and or through, I think it was probably through he used more, through social responsibility. Mm. And part of this was he felt like one of the key challenges in the fast-moving consumer product group was around sustainability, environmental impact, a host of things that were becoming increasingly problematic. So think social responsibility, but obviously he had a fiscal responsibility. And while some people felt there was this tension, and so you put CSR in a little bucket, he changed this view and he said, and so he built a model as he started to go into the boundaries to separate and connect. And he said, all right, let's separate this. And so every product, every kind of problem they deal with, and one I heard him use it multiple times was, as an example, was Pantene, moving Pantene. I think it was into Eastern Africa. I can't remember exactly. And he said, okay, so, I, and I want you to do this for every time we have one of these innovation kind of questions. I want you to, one, on one side of the sheet, I want you to tell me, how are you going to grow market share? How are you going to increase revenue? How are you going to decrease cost? This is the whole profitability side. And then I want you to tell me, how are you going to reduce water, reduce pollution, reduce transportation costs, packaging, and involve the local communities? You see what I'm doing? He's building basically two sides of a ledger, so he's separating. And as he was doing that, he was connecting it around something he called this Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. He said, our mission is to make a more sustainable world, and that starts with people's lives. And so we touch 2 billion consumers a day, and our goal is in 10 years, we will double our profits and half, cut in half, our environmental footprint. And people totally thought he was crazy. But that two-sided separation approach taught amazing things. It was almost like the Toyota kind of model in the 80s that blew the minds of American manufacturers because by doing this, actually, the more they reduced the social challenges or positively impacted the social challenges, they actually reduced costs. Mm. They grew a whole new group of consumers and investors. And what they found was this very virtuous cycle. So instead of people like in the, remember, the quality efficiency, you can't do them both, or he found the same thing with sustainability and profitability. And the comfort issue was throughout it, he, he had huge tensions from his people also on the side of, you can't do this. I don't understand. It doesn't work this way. The bigger you get, the more damage you do. He had a lot of that and kept building this comfort and discomfort. I want you to work through this around the table for every big project. And the dynamics he just kept walking forward and he would find remarkable opportunities to not only succeed in Unilever, but start working with the UN. Unilever started becoming this model company. He turned that cycle, that system into such a virtuous cycle at Unilever that not only did he actually achieve what he set out to do in 10 years, but it just set a model for multinationals. And it's not perfect because that's the dynamics. It's you got to keep learning. All right. Okay. I like that. So he created a paradox that got them shifting their thinking right now a paradox between yeah. uh, let's be financially responsible and financial growth and also be environmentally responsible and how do we put these together. And I particularly like that one because we have lots of good examples where organizations have responded to that charge first where they say it can't be done. 
right? And they mm-hmm. find some way to actually, oh, that's right. we can save energy at the same time while we increase the footprint of our warehouses, right? These paradoxes yeah. that go together. And you can imagine every time you find what, something that starts to make it happen, people said, huh, it, wow, that worked. And so you start to build kind of belief that it's possible. Right. Yeah. My dad was a dairy man, dairyman, growing up with okay. cows originally and then helping to manage dairies later. And he ended up dying one week before my son was born. And so then oh. a little bit later when my son, I think, was nine and my daughter would have been 12, we went and we arranged for a tour, a private tour of the last dairy he was in, just to see the place because they had never seen us. Yes, what does a dairy operation look like? And one of the things that I found fascinating was their cottage cheese line, right? That they do cottage cheese. And the byproduct, a waste product historically of cottage cheese is this mm-hmm. whey solution. And then I don't know who originally discovered this, but found out like, yeah, I'm curious. People would appreciate whey it. protein. If we can find a way to dehydrate that whey solution, we can create whey protein and bottle that up in containers and sell that as a usable product. And I just thought that was such a great example of what used to, oh, for a long a time, example. was a waste yeah. product. Right. Now got turned into a byproduct value. that people value, right? Mm, that's a wonderful example. Good paradox thinking there. It is. Okay. Really love the model. Thanks for taking us through that. You did mention quotes before. Uh-huh. And you gave us a good one. I don't know if you have another one for us that you wanted to share as well. I'm going to give you an example more than a quote, because I think the Wasselwick quote is my favorite. But one of the the studies that really got me down the paradox both in thinking came from a guy named Rothenberg. And Rothenberg was studying creative geniuses. He studied Einstein, Mozart, Picasso, Virginia Woolf. And so I put in in our minds just a term in some ways that I think is really powerful. And he the term he coined was Janusian thinking. And if you, Janus is the two-faced god. Can you picture the god? It has, Mm. in Greek mythology, the god is looking both ways. And the reason why Janusian thinking came out of this study is that he found that these creative geniuses had a really interesting thing in mind, in in common, sounds a lot like Pullman, is that they found great value in opposites, in these contradictions to the point that they started looking for them, right? This Einstein, this is particles and waves in motion and at rest. Picasso, it was light and dark. Mozart, it was harmony and discord. Wolf, it was life and death. And they made their most creative, beautiful insights and innovations out of the juxtaposition of both. Not a bland compromise, but like, it, the more I read that and I think about Janusian thing, if you can li- listen to Mozart, you can hear harmony and discord. And it makes both of them more powerful. Picasso's paintings can do the same thing. When you, it's, it is a juxtaposition that is both jarring and attention grabbing. And you can feel it, your creative juices flowing, even just involved. But be that Janus faced God, right? How do you look in opposing directions? Because it goes right back to the assumptions piece is we may be looking straight ahead or think we're looking straight ahead, but really we're looking in one direction. We're missing an opposing direction that might hold so much because we need both. Again, not as a bland compromise. We literally need both in their richest differences. Right. They're fuel for each other. That's right. 
And I was thinking, what are my opposites? And I really don't know, but the first thing that came to mind is I'm a very high introvert when I look at Myers-Briggs type indicator, very high. And I need that time to be by myself, to let me both recharge and also just reflect and think. And I've also learned, like this interaction we're having, right, to exhibit myself as a high extrovert because that interaction has become so important to me to be part of a community with others and sharing and interacting with others. I love it. That's a wonderful example. So thanks for letting me think about that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's really remarkable psychological studies about the power in our own psyche about getting comfortable with our inner contradictions. And that's a perfect one, introvert and extrovert, because we might sit on one side, but how do we pull from the other to actually enrich both? Very good. Okay, this is great. Tell us how we could find out more about the work you're doing as well as your book. Thank you for that. So the book is Both and Thinking, Embracing Your Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. It's it's published by Harvard Business Review. It's with myself, Marianne Lewis, and first author, Wendy Smith. You can find out lots more about the different work that we've done on our website, bothandthinking.net. And that will also provide you all of our different handles for social media and other ways to be connected. But really, it's a pleasure, Chad, to be able to interact and learn from you and the great work you do on your podcast and with so many innovators who are working through tensions every day. Absolutely. And this is why I was Mm -hmm. so eager to talk with you, because we do face these tensions. And you've given us a really good framework to think about that differently, right? And how can we embrace that as a paradox that actually benefits us? And we'll be putting the framework to good use. Everyone can go to bothandthinking.net to find out more about you and your co-author and the resources and find the insights on the book as well. And the book, again, is Both and Thinking. So, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, Chad. My pleasure. And listeners, just as a reminder, if you want that summary of everything we talked about in a written format, including a one-page action guide to immediately put into action this framework and some of the key takeaways, Simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 433. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.